Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, this week we are continuing on with our ESG mini-series. We were delighted to have Meredith Ingwin on the pod. She is a chemist that worked on a lot of projects that lowered pollution and increased reliability on the electric grid throughout her career. She has always been a massive advocate for nuclear energy and more recently she's become an author. Shorting the grid, the hidden fragility of our electric grid is one of our new favorite books. Andrew and Juan sat down with Meredith to discuss the role that nuclear has in the modern energy transition discussion and its relationship with solar, wind, hydro, and fossil-based energy, including some of the myths that surround each fuel type. Enjoy. Meredith Angwin, welcome to the Valley Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? Fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, I have to say that both Andrew and I, we are very, very happy to talk to you today. We read your last book, Short in the Grid, fascinating topic, and there's so many things to cover. But before we go into that, um, for the benefit of our listeners, could you please introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your background? Yes, uh, my name is Meredith Angwin, and I, I uh, am a chemist by training and by what I did during my working life. I, uh, I, I was a chemist in, on utility projects, and, and I, I, cut, I, I was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute, which is a research institute sponsored by the electric utilities in the United States, uh, mainly to do projects that will benefit all the utilities uh, so that every utility isn't doing its own corrosion control project, for example. So uh, that was actually one of my expertise areas, corrosion control, and I worked in also in pollution control, pollution control for NOx at uh, uh, gas-fired plants for sulfur oxides at, at, at coal plants, at H2S for geothermal plants, and then uh, corrosion control in, uh, in nuclear plants. And uh, I, I became, having dashed around between all these different uh technologies, I became very pro-nuclear. Then I began, when I moved out to Vermont in semi-retirement, I was, most of my life, I was around Palo Alto, which is where EPRI was, Electric Power Research Institute is located. Um, I, uh, I began uh, being supportive to our nuclear power plant, uh, Vermont Yankee, and writing a blog about it. And as I began blogging about it, I had to blog about its interactions with the grid operator. And so I began learning about the grid. This was in uh, 2010. So I've been studying the grid for the past uh, uh, 
what dozen years, and uh, I became one of the members of the coordinating committee for our grid operators, consumer liaison group, and so forth. Unfortunately, when I tried to explain things about the grid to people, it was very long-winded because it is very complicated. There are layers and layers and layers of people responsible for this and partially responsible for that. And I ended up writing a book about it because what I learned was the grid was becoming more fragile. It would be taking less and less to lead to rolling blackouts. So I guess that's it. The book is Shorting the Grid, the Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. That, that's a fascinating uh, read, but you, you have also written other, you, you also wrote another book, no one in, on nuclear, is that correct? Yes, one is called um, Campaigning for Clean Air, Strategies for Pro-Nuclear Advocacy. Uh, when I was defending Vermont Yankee uh, from people who were saying it should be shut down, unfortunately it did get shut down. But when I was doing that, I noticed that the anti-nuclear people were all over uh, Uh, their um, activism, their advocacy. They, you know, they they came to meetings in costumes. They uh, they wrote lots of letters to the editor. They shouted down pre uh, other presenters, which is not what I recommend in my book. But meanwhile, you know, there were a lot of people who were pro nuclear, and they were kind of shy compare in comparison. So I basically wrote. Uh, Campaigning for Clean Air, Strategies for Pro-Nuclear Advocacy. The first half of the book is how to be a pro-nuclear advocate if you're shy, how to be a pro-nuclear advocate from behind <laughs> your computer, uh, you know, uh, uh, writing letters to the editor, having a group to get together to write letters to the editor, uh, going to meetings, uh, maybe not going to meetings if you're too shy to go to meetings. Uh, there are other things you can do that would support the, the plant uh, and, uh, you know, And also to have fun when doing it. I mean, the nuclear advocates tended to be like, very serious, very serious. Let's make sure we have every fact right. And meanwhile, the anti-nuclear advocates are like, we're all going to wear skeleton costumes this time, isn't it? I mean, so I, I just uh, I just wanted to, to kind of get, get a little more evenness between the two groups. Before we go into the discussion about the different um, technologies on power generation and the different fuels options out there, I'm very sure Andrew is very keen on getting your thoughts on. Um, maybe it could be a good start to uh, explain to our audience what exactly is the grid, how does it work, and what are the main energy sources that feed the grid? Okay, the grid is... A, a, The, the connections between the power plants and the end users, at least that's what I consider it to be. It obviously, it also contains the power plants and the end users, but uh, my emphasis was, was a lot on, on how it's connected up and how, for example, power plants are dispatched. Right now, most grids in the world are uh, like 80% fossil fuels, 60% fossil fuels. Uh, there's a lot of talk, if you read the popular press, about how renewables are growing, and they are. But when you get right down to it, they're still at uh, less, uh, if you put renewables and uh, hydro together, and some people feel you shouldn't add hydro to that, they're less than 20% of most grids. Uh, and uh, 
which means that there's a, there's a fossil grid out there. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but when people begin saying, oh, you know, we're just at the breaking point, we're just at the point where it's all going to be clean renewables. And I'm like, uh, actually, renewables have some problems, uh, just like every other kind of power plant is. And uh, they're not going to be very good for 100% of the grid because they turn on and off Many of them do when they want to. So if you have a, a wind plant and there's more demand on the grid, you have a wind farm, you can't have the grid dispatcher calling up the wind farm and say, hey, give me some more. Get that wind going. You can't turn the wind on. So basically, uh, the power plants that you can turn on and off, those are the backbone of the grid. And the others are not... Not so much. Uh, um, now, there are very uh, grids that have very low carbon contents, and, 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 uh, and one of them is uh, France, of course, which is 70% uh, nuclear. And then uh, Ontario is a wonderful mix of nuclear and hydro. So there are grids that are, if people go around saying we need to decarbonize the grid, there are grids that have done this, but they are not grids that depend on wind and solar. They are grids that depend on nuclear and hydro. And, and that's just a fact. And in all percentages of how uh, renewables are growing doesn't change the fact that uh, that that is what's happening. When people talk about a grid that's like mostly wind, they're actually talking about a subset of a grid. For example, they might say, oh, well, you know, uh, Iowa has a lot of wind on its grid. Well, yeah, but the Iowa grid isn't just Iowa. The Iowa grid is the whole Midwest. And when the wind in Iowa uh, uh, dies down, there are power plants, uh, gas-fired and, and coal-fired power plants just sitting there waiting to take up the slack. Hi, Meredith. Uh, I just wanted to pick up on one of the comments you make in the, the uh, your book about gas, because I uh, and some of the issues with gas power. Because I, I think a lot of people, you know, the normal narrative is that we we get to some renewable, low carbon place one day, uh, and gas is basically the the backbone of, of of what gets us there. And there were some issues that you raise in your book with regard to, you know, that the way that gas works with the grid and some of the potential frailties of it that, that I hadn't been aware of. So um, would you mind spelling those out? Because it, it, it seems to be a very consensual view that, that gas is a big part of the answer. Well, the consensual view is that the gas is a big part of the answer because there are two things that gas can do. It can ramp up and down quickly. So when the, a cloud goes over the sun or, or the wind dies down, they, it can fill in quickly. And the other thing is it's, a, a, you know, it's, it's a comparatively clean fossil fuel, so everybody's looking at it, I mean, you know, compared to, to coal. Though really coal has been cleaned up a lot, but coal will never be gas. So at any rate, the problem is that gas is just in time delivery. So if you have a coal plant, you have coal on site. If you have a, a nuclear plant, you have 18 months of fuel in the, in the uh, reactor. Uh, if you have a gas plant, the gas is delivered through pipelines and it shows up when it needs to show up. So you end up with a grid that is 
power plants that are renewable that go on and off when they want to, backed up by gas, which is delivered just in time. And there are several problems with just in time. The first is that um, this is a really important system and you do not want it to fail. And unfortunately, there are various ways it can fail. For example, uh, in the winter, everybody, people tend to look at high demand on the grid in the summer with the air conditioners. But in the winter, uh, there's a high demand for natural gas from homes heating themselves. The homes get first priority. And so the power plant sometimes can't get natural gas to make electricity. Unfortunately, the power plants have to make a lot of electricity in winter because many homes uh, either use some heat, uh, electric heat. For example, people are trying to move most homes to heat pumps, which run on electricity, or they supplement. I mean, here in Vermont, it's very cold in the winter, and a lot of our homes are old. We're an old state. We were you know, we have houses in neighboring towns that were built in like 1797 or something. And, and a lot of them are leaky. And so a lot of people use supplementary little uh, electric space heaters to keep comfortable in the winter. And so you see the, the power plants need to put out more uh more electricity, but maybe they, if they're all gas, they can't get the gas. So we've been, they can't always get the gas. So we've, our grid operator has gone through all kinds of shenanigans to try and solve this problem by actually paying the gas-fired plants to keep oil on site for the winter, because many of the plants are uh, what's called dual-fired. They can burn gas or they can burn oil, and they can store oil. One winter, which I document in my book, uh, we had it so that the oil on site at power plants was down to less than one day. And luckily, the cold uh, moderated that day. It had been the power plant oil on site, even stored by our grid operator in their winter reliability program, was uh, diminishing. So it, it isn't a, a particularly, you know, uh, great situation uh, to have only minimal amounts of fuel stored on site or no fuel to, stored on site. And it's kind of funny because I wrote this book and um, Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. And I, and I, I sent it, I, I, I used a New England example and I used other examples and then um, it, it was issued in uh, October 2020. And then in February 2021, of course, Texas practically, uh, the grid practically collapsed. And I got all these emails saying, wow, I understood what was happening in Texas because I read your book. And of course, it actually was pretty close to the same thing I wrote about. The first thing was that the wind had been a huge portion of Texas and it died down. And then the, uh, the gas-fired plants tried to ramp up and, and succeeded in ramping up to cover the shortfall in the wind, except that as it got colder, some of their uh, uh, valves froze, uh, more houses began using gas, and then all of a sudden they couldn't ramp up anymore and they had to begin shedding load, that is just 
cutting people off from electricity so the whole grid didn't collapse. And uh, so it was a very bad time in Texas at that point. Um, I think that Andrew and I were talking before uh, our session today, and we wanted to ask you to spell a little bit a few of the myths that there are, that there are behind some of the different fuels that power the grid. Um, and so we will list them. Uh, we'll take turns with Andrew and we will list them. And you. already you have already talked a little bit about gas, but uh, I'm going to take first renewables. And you have said in the past, mainly in your book, that there are three main issues when it comes to renewables on the grid. So could you explain what those issues are and what are some of the fallacies and misunderstanding behind the narrative around the renewables? First is that they're spiky. That is, they're, they go on and off when they want to. So your clouds go over the sun, clouds come out of the sun, uh, the uh, wind picks up, the wind dies down. I mean, inconstant is the wind is, is not, not, you know, an unusual thing. And so basically you need to have a, a backup uh, power uh, for, for these things. And, and you need to use, have to have uh, fast acting backup power. And that is very different from what's called load following power. In other words, there's more, electricity you say at five in the evening uh, than at five in the morning. And so the, the electrical load changes during the day. But it generally, since there's so many people involved in, in setting that load, so many people turning their lights on and off and stuff, it tends to be a very smooth curve because of the law of large numbers. It, but Unfortunately, wind can die down very suddenly and so forth. So you need fast acting backup for them. Then the second issue is that, you know, the sun doesn't shine at night and so forth and so on. Okay, that's, that's another issue uh, that, that we don't have reliable uh, renewable power. We have, you know, people say, oh, but there are battery packs coming. And there are, but none of them last for more than four hours so that's one of the things. Another thing is that there are issues with uh, electric quality. And, and I, I don't mean to get too geeky about this, but basically rotating electric machinery uh, puts uh, power on the grid in a certain way, which is how the grid is expecting to get it. But the renewables, uh, a solar uh, panel, is not rotating. There's nothing rotating in it. And uh, so it uses inverters to change its DC power to grid power. And this can lead to issues in, in handling it. I don't want to get too uh, complicated with it. Now, somebody said, oh, but the wind, the wind, the turbine, the wind turbine's rotating. Well, yes, but it's rotating at whatever speed it wants to rotate, depending on the wind power, the wind that's blowing. And the grid has to be very, very steady at 60 hertz, at, at least in our country, I think 50 in yours. And, and basically, um, it has to be 60 cycles per second or 50 cycles per second. When Texas had to actually take things off the grid so that uh, take uh, people off the grid to not let it collapse, it had, the grid had gone down from 60 cycles per second to something like 
59.4 cycles per second. So you see what you have to do with a wind turbine is you change its output to uh, direct current, and then you have inverters that change it to match the grid power. Then uh, there are all kinds of solvable issues uh, that uh, come. Um, and I would say one of the solvable issues, which is still worth thinking about, is that um, a power plant that decides to get on the grid, uh, let's, say, let's say there's a new gas fire plant being built. It's going to be built, okay? When it goes to the various grid operators and licensing agencies and public utilities commission, they will tell it, you have to buy, build a transmission system for that thing. You're, you're causing that change. You have, to, you have to upgrade the grid for it. Unfortunately, with, with renewables, they're very reluctant to upgrade the grid. And, and, and when, every, when, um, when you begin talking about like solar, uh, behind the meter solar, uh, why should my house pay for a grid upgrade? It's all these other people with their solar that set the grid in a position that it needed to be upgraded. It wasn't just my house that did it. And so there's a, a lot of issues about uh, just paying for the grid to, to, to take the, the renewables. Um, can I circle back to something that you mentioned before, which caught my attention. Um, why is it hydro not considered to be a renewable? In my opinion, which isn't as humble as it used to be, <laughs> but in my opinion, the whole title renewable is a marketing term. And, and it isn't really about whether it's renewable or not. So for example, if you go to our grid operators page on what fuel is on the grid right now, and it will have a little chart of what renewables are on the grid, which will be separate from the main chart of what power plants are on the grid. So you might see that there's you know, 90% fossil on the grid, 10% renewables, and those renewables are this, this, and this. Okay, what are they? I'm, I'm going to tell you that most of the time, if the wind isn't blowing strongly, most of the renewables on our grid are burning biomass and burning trash. I mean, it's, that's it. Uh, and, and of course, the trash is burned in very nice power plants that, that have pollution control on it. I don't want you to get the impression there's a little trash fire going on. But when you get right down to it, burning garbage has been anointed as renewable. And biomass is certainly very controversial because, you know, you burn a tree in four minutes, you have to grow that tree in 30 years. So you're adding CO2 that you're not going to recapture for 30 years. So there's a lot of controversy about biomass, but biomass has also been anointed as renewable. Meanwhile, there's a feeling that the big uh, hydro plants, unlike small hydro plants, are part of you know, the military industrial complex or something. And so they shouldn't be considered renewable. I mean, I don't know why th that is. I mean, you can have a small hydro plant that's called renewable and a large hydro plant that isn't. But as I say, it's a marketing term. It is a marketing term in my opinion. It doesn't have to do 
with what, how renewable it is. How renewable is our garbage? Yes, we keep making it, but it is, does this mean that it's part of the wonderful course of nature, that it's a renewable? I, I don't know. It's, yeah. That, that's interesting because in, in the UK, we have one large uh, biomass power generator. And as you say, from their marketing materials, they're obviously very keen to extol the virtues of, uh, of what they do. But on the, the national grid, uh, the UK national grid, they get categorised as other rather than renewables. So I guess that tells you perhaps where um, where the grid thinks uh, that they lie in, the, in terms of being renewable or not. Well, I think um, that's lovely. I, I would love to see these things classified as other rather than renewable. Uh, go ahead. I'm, I'd interrupt you there. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of the kind of, again, the consensual response to the points on uh, on the volatility of the generation that you make is that, and you, you alluded to it just now, is that, okay, well, at some point, bat batteries are going to be the answer. Uh, and even if they're inadequate today, then at some point in the future, that's got to be part of the, the solution. So you've talked about kind of how inadequate they are, they are today. Um, will they ever be a big part of the solution? And if, if so, what, what kind of time frame are we, are we looking at for that? Well, I'm not able to project whether there will ever be some part of the solution, but I would say that they're not today because I was just looking up where are the biggest batteries in the world and how much uh, power can they do? Now, you understand that our um, Vermont Yankee power plant in this area was shut down as being uh, non-economic um, non because it was too small, okay? It made 600 megawatts of power for 18 months at a time, okay? Now the batteries, the, the biggest battery that I know of is 300 megawatts and can make power for four hours. This battery is a very small part of, of, of the grid. And you say, well, there could be better batteries, there could be cheaper batteries and so forth. Actually the, the best and the, the only grid scale storage I know of is pump storage. And uh, the, the chances that anybody's going to let a new one be built are pretty slight because, it, you know, what you have to do is you have to go near a river or lake and go on a hill near the lake. And then you have to dig a big reservoir up that hill and put turbines at the lake level and at the reservoir level. And that becomes pump storage. The, the, the number of people who would want to see a, a hill dug out like that, uh, it very small nowadays. In the old days, it was also controversial, but uh, many of them got built. But I don't think they could be built uh, today. One more quote statement about batteries. And, and I just, let me look at a situation. Uh, let's say you have um, enough uh, wind turbines uh, running that when the wind is blowing, that the wind turbines can make 100% of the grid's power. Okay, isn't this wonderful? So you say, but then we'll back them up with batteries. What is going to charge the batteries? If you, the, the, the wind turbine power is all going to the grid. If you want to charge batteries, then you're going to have to build another wind turbine next to it to charge the batteries with. So that when the wind is blowing strong, you have enough for the grid and for the batteries. Oh, and then... So now you've got a, a double investment. That is, you've invested capital for wind turbine number one and wind turbine number two, and then you have to buy a battery too. So what I'm trying to say is you've got, um, if you look at an ordinary grid, an ordinary grid uh, that is just sort of like, 
you know, it has a bunch of nuclear plants, it has some hydro, it has a couple of gas plants. The general rule is that you look at the uh, maximum amount that you expect to have demand on the grid, and you have capacity for 120% of that maximum amount, because some of the plants may or may not be available when the maximum amount comes by. But if you look at just a wind turbine in this example, if it was all wind turbines, you have to have 300% capacity right off the bat, right? The wind turbine, the other wind turbine for the battery and the battery. It's not, I mean, the redundancy requirements become absolutely huge. And, the, and, uh, and I, that is one of the problems that people don't address when they go like, oh, well, we'll have some batteries. There was something interesting about batteries that you, well, there were a lot of things that you mentioned in your book that were very interesting about batteries. But one that caught my attention that I didn't know was the fact that people have tried to improve the technology around batteries to store more energy for decades. Yes, uh, yes. It, it seems like, because it, it became so in vogue over the last few years that people think that, well, the technology might not be here now because no one has come up with a solution and maybe they will come in the future. Um, but you made the point that this is a problem that has confounded people for generations. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Battery projects, when I entered the uh, field of energy and I was very much interested at that time and, and active in geothermal energy because my, my PhD thesis, which I did not complete, okay, but it was on mineral chemistry and I was totally into mineral chemistry and rock hounding and I thought the best thing I could ever do in the world would be to work in geothermal energy. When I began working on it, which I hate to tell you was like in the 1980s and now you're going to go do an estimate of my age and I will tell you I'm in my 70s. And at any anyway, rate, <laughs> um, when, I, when, I, uh, when I began working on it, uh, one of the first projects that we put together was a huge battery test facility. And they've been doing these kinds of things for, what, 40, 50 years. And batteries don't improve very much. Uh, I don't ever say there can't be a breakthrough. But there's one thing to say, I hope there's a breakthrough. And another thing to say, we're counting on the breakthrough. It's going to happen. And, you know, that, that is, that's like asking for miracles. Breakthroughs do happen. And steady work can make it more likely that they happen. But that doesn't mean they're going to happen. And the, the other thing that caught my attention, um, and you, you referred to this whole topic as the folklore batteries, which I thought was a... Uh, a nice way to put it, was that even people that are very pro-environment, they know that batteries are not the solution. Well, you know, if you talk to people who are actually active in utility stuff, you know, people who are, uh, you know, grid operators, people like me who've been trying, uh, spent most of my life trying to solve corrosion and pollution problems for the various kinds of technologies, we have a great deal of skepticism about batteries. But if you go to somebody who is just a renewable advocate, they will say, oh, no, batteries are coming right along. And it's a, 
it's a belief system of, 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 of uh, uh, so in my opinion. It, 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 it's not backed up by, you know, oh, this battery is going to do it. Uh, they just made a breakthrough. It, it, it's a it's a belief system. I'm sorry to say that, but it, it is. And it, sometimes it bothers me because the people who've actually worked in it and who are skeptical are considered to be, you know, somehow wrong. You know, you don't you even hope for the future? Or, and I'm like, yeah, I, I think it'd be great if we had a lot more nuclear plants. I hope for that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm not supposed to hope for that. I'm supposed to hope for batteries. I don't know. You've kind of hinted at, well, more than hinted at the fact you're you're pretty pro-nuclear along the way. So um, are there any drawbacks of, um, you know, people are very quick to, to note the obvious drawbacks or perceived drawbacks of, of nuclear power, but are there any kind of more subtle or nuanced drawbacks that you draw our attention to with regard to nuclear? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, from my point of view, many of the drawbacks that people talk about are uh, are kind of subtle. <laughs> like, for example, every now and again, um, someone will say to me, how can you be in favor of nuclear? Don't you understand that the, the nuclear waste or spent nuclear fuel will be radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years? And I say, uh, yeah. And uh, how long will the uh, will the mercury in, a, in, in coal ash be dangerous? <laughs> Forever. I mean, in other words, people say, people have never, humans have never dealt with a, 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 a something that's dangerous for 100,000 years. And I say, yeah, usually they deal with something that's dangerous forever. But I feel that the anti-nuclear feelings have to do more with nuclear bombs, at least in people my age. My mother was a big uh person, uh, uh, she wasn't a big person, she was uh, about my size, but she was very, very active in, in band the bomb groups. And uh, that was good because they were doing, you know, atmospheric testing all over the place. And, um, and, and that wasn't a good thing to do. But the thing is that some of those groups, when they stopped doing atmospheric testing, just sort of moved on over to banning nuclear plants. They, you know, they run out of one thing, they're going to do another. And they didn't even really spend any time thinking about the, the, the fact that nuclear made very uh, clean, uh, available power. As a matter of fact, um, at the time uh, where my mother was uh, walking around uh, with groups to ban the bomb, uh, my... Uh, uh, the Sierra Club had a, a, a slogan, atoms, not dams, because dams disrupted the uh, ecosystems of rivers and, and areas near rivers. They led to more evaporation from the great big uh, ponds that are just open to the sunlight instead of rivers that have some shade sometimes. And, and they were, you know, they were like atoms, not dams. And then Nowadays, they're sort of like, oh, we, we can do little, little dams on all the streams, and that'll be good. Or we can do uh, wind turbines on all the hills, and that'll be good. And kind of, anyway, I, I wish I could tell you some uh, disadvantage to nuclear that hasn't already been trumpeted and exaggerated by the anti-nuclear people. 
there are disadvantages, but there are, you know, there are so many uh, anti-nuclear people that, that will e- exaggerate them that <laughs> I don't know what to say. So to kind of flip that question around, what are the positive aspects of nuclear that you think are underappreciated by, by, by the public? Well, I think one of the things that is underappreciated by the public is how little fuel is needed and how, um, how easily you can site a nuclear plant. So, for example, uh, if you, if you want a, a, a hydro plant, you've got to start with a river. Uh, if you want a nuclear plant, the big, I believe it's the biggest nuclear plant in this country, is Palo Verde. And it's in the Arizona desert and uses wastewater from uh, uh, Phoenix as its cooling mechanism. So, you know, the nuclear plants can be sited in many, many places. Another thing is that the, the, um, the amount of waste, uh, the amount of any time you do a process, the process makes something you want and something that maybe you don't want. And so, for example, um, if I'm uh, if I'm cooking, I'm going to have to clean a pan afterwards. The process made food, but it also led to uh, something that I would rather it didn't. But at any rate, that's a relatively simple analogy. But so the amount of fuel needed is very important. So we had a, uh, a coal plant near us. It was the uh, it's still there, Merrimack Station in New Hampshire, and it was 400 megawatts. And um, it needed, in order to produce uh, at full power, it needed 40 coal cars a day of 100 tons of coal each. That's each day. And they made ash and they made CO2 and they made many, many things that people really didn't want them to make, but they made it. Okay. And think about those 40 coal cars each day. Meanwhile, over at the nuclear plant, Two semis pull up every 18 months with fuel for the next 18 months. Think about the difference in what has to be stored and what has to be dealt with. Because if you think coal ash is fun stuff, I mean, I'd I'd like to say it isn't. It has to be taken care of carefully. Sometimes it's sold, okay, as an additive for concrete. I mean, and I'm not, I don't want to say every bit of it is is waste product, but there are are a lot of coal ash ponds in this country, and they just consist of coal ash in, uh, in a reservoir that's always kept wet so it won't fly around. I think that, but you won't correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that one of the things that have kept people away from nuclear over the last 12 years is the risk of an accident happening at the plant or the security measures at the plant not being good enough to contain an accident. So I think that Fukushima changed the perspective about that risk. And lately, the news on Ukraine when Russia attacked very close to a nuclear plant also made made people very scared. Well, I mean, I think that it is, uh, I think that the Russian attacking uh, nuclear plants could be very scary, assuming that a company, country actually wants to conquer another country. I think they'd like the country to be usable when they finish conquering it. And so uh, the the chances of them uh, uh, 
really trying to make a horrible mess with a nuclear plant seems small. Also, you know, uh, nuclear plants are very hardened. Uh, their, their containment, are, are, you, can, you can hit them with a, a, a plane and stuff and, and, and they'll stay in one piece. So uh, people say, oh, what if the 9-11 terrorists had gone after the Indian Point nuclear plant? Well, they weren't going to because when they hit a skyscraper, they could cause a lot of damage. When they hit, if they were to hit an Indi the Indian Point nuclear plant, their planes would fall apart on the containment, and containment uh, vessel, the, the containment dome, and uh, which is heavily reinforced and, and tested against all kinds of attacks. And uh, so they, they wanted a sure win. That's why they didn't do that. Um, so I guess the next question on, on nuclear is how, how, do, how do we get to this point? We, I, I've made this comment before on the podcast. I, I read this joke. I think it was a joke, but like as with any joke, there is a, a sense of reality behind it. Someone was saying that if it weren't for all the anti-nuclear protests in the 1970s and 1980s, the world from a cli climate change perspective wouldn't be in the place that it is today because probably there would be more more nuclear around. So how, how is it that we, we got to this place and how can we change the narrative behind nuclear? Well, I think that that statement about the 70s and 80s is absolutely true. And, and, and uh, I think the thing was that um, it's, it's hard to change the narrative and the people who are changing it though are young people. I mean, I, I said before, I'm in my 70s, I have white hair. I just want to say that it's the young people who are changing it because they are the ones who have the future ahead of them. They're the ones who, uh, when someone says, oh, we can't, we can't fight climate change with nuclear, they say, why not? Uh, while uh, people uh, who uh, grew up with uh, uh, threat of a nuclear bomb or whatever, they're, they're like, oh, if we could just get rid of the world of anything nuclear, that would be so great. And uh, um, I think the major narrative would be if we would, and part of this is laws and part of this is the nuclear industry. Nuclear has to be more open. It has to, it has to have tours of the power plants. It's very hard to get a tour of the power plants nowadays. Uh, and, and I think that that leads to terror. For example, if I drive by a prison, uh, you know, a, a federal prison, I think I know what goes on in that prison because I've seen movies set in prisons. But, you know, I, I, if you're not someone like me who's visited nuclear plants and tested water in nuclear plants and stuff, you have no idea what's going on in that nuclear plant, except that it's pretty scary. Look at it. Look at they've got barbed wire around it. And, uh, you know, I, I think that um, we have to do more, uh, not educating people, but letting people educate themselves, uh, having people tour nuclear plants, having uh, days when uh, people who work at nuclear plants go to their kids' school and talk about careers in nuclear, uh, having uh, having days when, uh, uh, you know, people who are in medicine talk about the importance of nuclear medicine and nuclear image and imaging. And anyway, I I, I don't know. I think the narrative is going to change. 
and I think younger people will do it, but I think it has to be kind of a, a grassroots thing. There are a lot of people who are my age or a little younger who are really entrenched in that they're anti-nuclear. I mean, it's part of their vision of themselves. And how are you going to change that? So if if we say, Meredith, that you get you get put in charge of, of everything and you get to tell all the young people what they should and shouldn't do, um, which I'm sure <laughs> is a position you'd, you, you'd relish, um, what would your strategy be in terms of getting from where we are today with the energy mix that we have to where we might want to be in the future whilst navigating those trade-offs between you know, stability of the grid, carbon emissions, th- those sorts of things. What, what would your plan be? Well, my, my plan would be, the first step would be to keep all existing nuclear plants running. Uh, unless they, you know, they're not capable of running like uh, some, some, have, uh, got, some have been maltreated, like, <clears throat> excuse me, Crystal River in, in, in Florida, uh, they they attempted to make a change, which actually kind of wrecked the plant. Uh, but most nuclear plants that are running now, just keep them running. That's the first step. The second step would be to build more nuclear plants at the sites of existing nuclear plants. The, the, the substations are in place. Whatever water supply is needed is in place. Everything's in place there, Okay. Then the third thing would be to have uh, advanced nuclear plants, which can, among other things, burn up the uh, used fuel from the existing nuclear plants and and generally expand nuclear greatly. Now you say, okay, you want 100% nuclear grid. No, I actually don't. I think that it's good for a grid to be varied. And so I would like to see a grid that has some natural gas and some some solar, maybe even some wind, but wind tends to blow at night. So it's not as useful to the grid, but you know, if it can, if it blows a higher portion of the day, then that's, that could be good too. So I would, I would tend to say, um, you know, uh, a a grid with existing hydro, existing and newly built nuclear, um, uh, fast response, uh, fast response, uh, natural gas, uh, Solar, I mean, that would be a really, really nice grid. And it would meet all our different needs for, for, for power at night, at high power demand times, at times when uh, it's cold out, because you wouldn't be using the, um, the gas plants for everything. Right now, more than 50% of the power on our New England grid and on many grids is natural gas. So you need a lot of natural gas. But if you had nuclear running at the base load, that is the amount of power that's used 24 hours a day was filled with nuclear, then you would only have natural gas filling the load following peaks and you wouldn't need as much of it and you wouldn't mess it, you wouldn't have some of the problems that we have uh, with uh, winter reliability. Um, in, in your book, at some point, you made the point that you were, you are pro-environment and you actually at some point in your career uh, went into, the, into a job to like get more renewables online. Yeah. Um, 
but somehow in the way that the narrative has evolved over the last couple of years and the debate around climate change has become more heated and much more polarized with people taking very radical views and a lot of white and blacks rather than shades of gray, which is more representative of how complex this topic is. Um, I think that in your book, you, you had to make the comment that you are pro-renewables as well. That is not that you are against it. It's just that the way that renewables work from a physics perspective and the grid operates just makes them suboptimal. Is that a correct statement? Yes, I'm, I'm in favor of them when they're, they're pay, when they're planned for and you know how much you're going to need and so forth. I mean, you wouldn't decide to have all this kind of plant or that kind of plant on a grid without without running the scenarios and thinking about it and so forth. But people are just like, oh, we're going to have 100% renewables. Well, maybe we should have 30% renewables, 50% nuclear, and and, 30, and 20% natural gas. I mean, think it through. Think what the grid needs and then put the renewables on it. I think that another thing that you mentioned, which for me was came as a little bit of a surprise, is that you made the point that having renewables as part of the system doesn't mean that the environment will get cleaner because you will need another plant, which is usually fossil fuel and gas is fossil fuel in place to support the grid when those renewables are not operating. And on top of that, you were uh, making the point that even in some cases, there is a fallacy about prices going down. Oh, prices wouldn't go down because you need too much uh, redundancy when you have a renewable grid. I mean, you just you just look at it and you say uh, a regular grid is 120% installed capacity. Renewable grid has to be, what, 200%, 300%. I mean, the prices can't go down if you're building that much. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, I guess the thing is that I don't like the... I, idea that renewables will clean up the grid. They're clean up the grid if they're used properly. One of the problems is uh, that let's say you had a, a car and uh, you drive it very conservatively because you're concerned with your gas mileage. And then you give it to your teenage kid who is a, a lead foot. And he's, he's uh, he kind of darts away from, or she darts away from the stop sign, that car that has to accelerate fast is going to use more gas per mile than the conservatively driven car. And the same is true for gas turbines. If they have to uh, ramp up quickly and ramp down quickly because of the sun or because of the wind, they will not be as efficient. So if, if you uh, look at uh, pollution, it may be worse because you're using more gas per kilowatt hour. What I'm trying to say is that people make the assumption that if you just put uh, some uh, renewables on the grid, you're going to have less pollution. And that depends on how many you put up and uh, what pollution you're trying to control and uh, how you're managing your backup gas plants. In terms of the the um, the pathway that, that you laid out, um, we're often cognizant when we have these discussions that for you know some of the big moving parts here are in uh, emerging markets, developing markets. And is there anything different that you would recommend for those markets? Because 
of the situations they're in because they don't have the legacy of the same kind of grid as we do? Is there anything you know, different, fundamentally different that they should, in the way they should be doing things that, that, than we should? I'm going to tell you that I, I follow uh, Robert Bryce on this. I don't know if you know Robert Bryce, but basically he has uh, he has some films and books, uh, Electricity, How Electricity uh, Juice is his film, How Electricity Explains the World. And I think that if you're an emerging nation, you should use anything you can. I mean, and, and, and if that's coal, that's coal. I mean, I would not like to see India swearing off coal. I mean... I, I would like to see them swearing off coal from the point of view of air pollution. But um, I don't think I have a right to tell India where people are have great difficulties just getting through their days uh, uh, to swear off, uh, swear off coal. Uh, um, on the other hand, if a rich country like America or Britain wanted to uh, send a lot of, uh, to help build a lot of nuclear plants in India, that could work too. I mean, that would be great. But the thing is that coal, coal is what brought the Western countries out of poverty. And uh, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of it, but uh, like I say, I also was working on sulfur oxide uh, um, pollution control as well as nitrogen oxide pollution control. Anyway, um, and coal makes sulfur oxides, uh, which you have to control. And, um, but, you know, first things first, you know, there's a Bertrand Brecht song which has a line in it that uh, I I like, which goes, "For even saintly men behave like sinners unless they've had their customary dinners," and I really uh, I really feel very strongly that that is the case, and we shouldn't be uh, telling people who don't get a good customary dinner how to behave. Meredith and Wynn, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective podcast. This was a real pleasure. We could keep you on for hours discussing. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I really enjoyed the questions. And and uh, I, thank you so much. I'm so happy. I, I had talked to you in emails, but I hadn't met. Uh, and I talked to Emily, but I hadn't, uh, I hadn't uh, met Andrew. So I'm, I'm delighted to meet everybody. Thank you.